Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this don't you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my song's gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One I'm gonna drop some coins, a little royalty money for the one and only JT the Human Thank you once again for the incredible intro music Not joining me today, my friend my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly, which can mean only one thing, that this is a continuation of our interview series. And today's guest is someone that I've been very excited to get on this podcast. He and I started messaging a couple of months ago. I kind of put out the feelers about whether he'd be interested in joining. He was ecstatic, excited, enthusiastic about joining us, which made me feel really great. But we've had this one in the works for a couple of months because this individual, his day job, his principal 1A job is covering the NFL for the ringer. And he's only recently, I would say probably in the last five or six months, taken up almost a second job within that organization covering Formula One. Of course, you've probably guessed it by now. Today's guest is none other than Kevin Clark. Kevin previously has covered the NFL for the Wall Street Journal. He was hired by The Ringer. In fact, he was, what's the word I should use here? He was... Um, contacted directly by Bill Simmons back in 2016, six years ago, we recruited directly. And when Bill Simmons reaches out to you, as we're about to learn earlier, you you stand up and you put on your running shoes and you run straight to the Ringer HQ. That's the type of opportunity that that pop culture, sports, and media organization offers the people that work there. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, we had Megan Schuster on, also from the Ringer. She works in a slightly different vertical, but both she and Kevin overlap because she's contributed to the Ringer F1 Show podcast. And of course, that is Kevin's baby. It was started earlier this year. And as we're going to learn shortly, it wasn't necessarily even something that had occurred to him as a really cool concept to pursue, but rather something that the ringer brass had brought to him and asked him to run with. And of course, it's evolved since then. They've had tons of great guests, both from the world of Formula One, but also from people that are in the established Formula One media game. I'm not one of those, but of course, I had the opportunity to join Tim Haraney on a recap of the Hungarian Grand Prix a couple of months ago. All of that to say, super excited to have Kevin on. Kevin's going to take us through his story, his journey, his journey in journalism and sports media. And then we're going to get into, of course, when and how Formula One intersected with his life. But one of the things we're going to learn is that he's different than a lot of the folks that we've been talking to in the last six, seven, eight months, that Formula One didn't intersect with his life in COVID, and it didn't happen with the original season of Drive to Survive in 2019, but rather he'd been a long time motorsports fan, but F1, in a really interesting way, found its way into his life about five years ago, so pre 
Drive to Survive. Now, one last request of everybody at home before we get started, because we're going to jump to breaks in a couple of seconds here. If you do enjoy our show, and I usually ask this at the very end, but if you enjoy our show and you listen on Spotify, it means the world to us if you can give us a rating in-app. It means the world, and if you're an Apple listener and you're listening on your iPhone, your iPad, whatever device you might have within that amazingly huge, complex Apple ecosystem, if you could give us a rating and a review, again, it means the world to us. It is like absolute steroids when it comes to analytics and the findability of our product. So with all of that said, we're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to be joined by the one, the only, Kevin Clark. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my friend, my neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy, Mr. Mark Daly. And that's because, like I teased before the commercial break, we have a very special guest today joining us from the ringer, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Kevin Clark. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm We're in kind of an F1 dead period. It's not the, the long break, but it's a longish. <laughs> break and I'm, I'm I'm getting a little antsy. Yeah, so am I. And it's so funny too because I didn't even realize, and this is how I, I don't know if I'm just a terrible content producer, but I didn't even realize there wasn't a Grand Prix this weekend until my friend messaged me and said, you know, there's no race this weekend. And it's kind of odd. We have this <laughs> we have this crazy super compressed triple header right after the break. Yeah. And then we get another long break. So I'm sure the mechanics, the engineers, the drivers, they deserve it. And I think we all look forward to the upcoming race, which is Singapore. My friend, for everybody that's listening to our podcast, some of them are obviously familiar with The Ringer. Some maybe have followed your work before, but some of them might be F1 centric and might not be super familiar with North American team sports. How would you introduce yourself and what would you want people <laughs> to know about, about you? Great question. So uh, I'm a senior writer covering primarily football at The Ringer. Um, I've been there since 2016. Before that, I was at the Wall Street Journal. And about five years ago, um, I started to watch F1. And basically, I went on a podcast called the Ryan Rosillo Podcast, um, which is up under the, the Ringer umbrella. It's one of the most popular podcasts um, anywhere, really. He mostly talks about the NBA and the NFL. So we started doing the segment called Going Abroad. It got popular. They asked me, The Ringer asked me in March if I wanted to do a, an F1 podcast. I said yes, but I, I I have so many other things going on. I also do golf. I also I mean, there, there's a lot of sports I cover. So I said yes, I'll do midweek episodes before the Grand Prix, 
And the appetite, as you know, for, for F1 in North America is such that when we saw the first numbers for the first episode, which actually was a Drive to Survive recap, my bosses called me and said, sorry, buddy, you've got a full-time job now. You've got an extra <laughs> full-time job. Um, you, it does not matter that you do football and golf and all of this other stuff and college football. Um, and so so for the past five months, um, uh, along with my my regular responsibilities, I also host the Ringer F1 show, um, which has been, I mean, I love it. It doesn't, none of this feels like work, you know? And so the idea that, I mean, I, I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek, but like the idea that I, you know, yesterday we had uh, Mero from from Jesus and Mero and Michelle Beadle on to just talk about the current season, you know, Beadle, who's a, again, if you're from Europe, she's a former uh, famous, very famous ESPN host um, who now does a bunch of other stuff. Um, and like, she's going to Singapore today. She, they have a podcast with Will Arnett. Like the idea to just like, if I, if I don't like chopping it up with those guys for 30 minutes, um, about F1, like I've got bigger problems. Um, and so the fact that, that I've got these responsibilities are great. Um, and, and it's just been a, an incredible journey, um, to get more ingrained in the F1 community over the past couple months. I'm dying to dig into the origins of the show. And, and it was kind of surprising to me in some ways that, it happened as late as it did that I almost would have expected it a year or two earlier. But before we start diving into Formula One a little bit, I'd love to know and understand a little bit more about your journey into the world of sports media. You grew up in Orlando, you grew up in Central Florida. Which sports and which teams did you gravitate towards when you were younger and why? Yeah, so in Florida, and I'm not sure, it's funny because I just did a story about the Packers coach, Matt LaFleur, and I was talking to his family, and he was talking about something that I don't actually hear a lot, but it's certainly true of me, which is that the NFL wasn't really on his family's radar growing up. I mean, let me, let me rephrase that. Of course, it's in everybody's living room. Everybody's watching Brett Favre versus Troy Aikman. But the religion in Florida is college football. I mean, that, that's where when you go to the grocery store, people are asking about the Seminoles versus the Gators versus the Miami Hurricanes, right? Um, and so that's the, that's the true religion. Everybody in America watches the NFL. Um, but, but in the South, in that area of the country, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, North, even North Carolina, parts of it, um, you're really looking at college football. So I always gravitated towards that. I, I, I learned the rules of football actually from, from my mom, um, while watching a Miami Nebraska game. And I think 1995, um, that was kind of when she just said, okay, here's, here's what a first down is. I think she kind of explained it a little bit wrong. Um, but, but I got the gist of it. Um, and so I, I think that there's, um, I think that the thing about Orlando is had an NBA team. I, I grew up. I mean, I, I was so lucky because Orlando was a very small town when I was growing up. It was it was, it was a tourist town um, that that had less people probably than you'd think back then. Um, and so there was an NBA team with two of the most famous people playing anywhere um, in in Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway. Uh, you know, that was a mile away from me. Um, you know, I can still walk when I'm home visiting my parents, still walk to the arena. Um, so I'd say a combination of college football being number one, NFL being probably 1B or, or 2A for a while, um, and then the NBA. And then, oddly enough, I played hockey for Really? In Central um, Florida? Yeah, in Central Florida. And I can, I can go all day on hockey. Um, but... It, it, I so there was a team called the Orlando. Solar I remember Bears, IHL, IHL absolutely in, in, in Orlando. Yeah, and it's funny because a couple people ended up, and I don't want to make this a hockey talk, <laughs> but a couple people. Todd Richards was on the team. He ended up coaching Minnesota for a while, and I think Columbus. He was the head coach. 
Um, he was like an all-time solo bears legend. He was up in hockey camps all the time. Don Waddell, who was the GM of that team, ended up being the GM um, in Atlanta. I don't know if he made the trip to Winnipeg as well. Um, but like it was just it was Orlando is an amazing place to be a sports fan because kind of everything touches it. I mean, like the Pro Bowl was there in, in the NFL every once in a while. Like, you know, Miami is right down the road. There's an F1. If you grew up in Orlando now, you know, instead of being born in the late 80s like I was, you're going to be three hours from an F1 race every year. You know, I mean, like it is unbelievable the opportunities you get to see You know, three NFL teams within three hours, bunch of NBA teams, bunch of obviously a bunch of college teams, even UCF. Like it is. Uh, and also. Right down the road is Daytona, 45 minutes. I mean, it's the closest major city to Daytona. And then you've got NASCAR, uh, you know, endurance races, um, that kind of stuff. I wish there was more of kind of an open wheel um, presence there, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. At what age then did you decide or start to get the sense that pursuing a career in sports media, in, in journalism was something that you maybe wanted to consider? Did it start as soon as, as high school or was this something that kind of came to be when you were in college, university? No, it was definitely in high school. Um, I was I was really into baseball when I was a kid, like in high school. Um, I was really and it's funny because a lot of people in my like Stephen Ruiz who hosts one of the NFL pods with me is in the same boat where like we were both baseball like sickos like just reading all of the stats books and like getting the history and reading about 19 1930s Yankees or whatever and and then baseball just like it's kind of fallen out of relevance in America like it just got it just doesn't doesn't fit the modern world anymore um when you think about how how many games there are how long each game takes I mean like right now Aaron Judge the Yankees player is um hitting he's hit his 60th home run the other day which is like would be a historic thing at any other time and he you know I live what 40 minutes from Yankee Stadium and like I just can't get it's like what am I supposed to see here for four hours to see four or like it just does it for some reason it just makes less sense every single time I watch a baseball game. Um, but having said that, um, I I I knew when I, both my parents are journalists. I had a couple other journalists in my family. My grandfather, um, I have an uncle who's a, who's a journalist, and so it always made sense to me because you always you just realize how fun it is. I mean, kind of what I was saying earlier about excuse me, um, kind of what I was saying earlier about how. Um, you know, if, if you like have an extra task for the day and it happens to be a 30 minute formula one chat, like that's not the worst thing in the world. Right. Um, and you, so, so through my parents and through the other folks in my family, I was able to see that, like, if I love sports and I did, like, you're going to be able to, um, you're going to be able to, to do some really, really fun stuff. It's never going to feel like work like that. That to me was the most important thing. And so there was a small, period of time where like I wanted to be a baseball GM after I read Moneyball when I was in high school. <laughs> um, I think there was probably a time I just wanted to be kind of like a, a punk rock bassist. Um, but that's that's about it. it. It was it was pretty much always sports journalism for me. Just on that baseball note as well, your comment about being kind of a, a stats sicko, like I had the same experience growing up here in the Pacific Northwest in the 90s. Like to me, it was normal to clip box scores out yeah. of the newspaper every day and just pour over the stats. And in elementary school, that's all we talked about was baseball, baseball. And so I, I'm yeah. a little bit older than you. So like the the early 90s with Cal Ripken Jr. and Ken Griffey Jr. and the first iteration of Barry Bonds, it's, it's funny how 
the role and the presence of baseball in the North American kind of social fabric has changed so much. So you ended up going to the University of, of Miami. What are some of your best memories of your time there? And why did you decide to go to that school? Yeah, so it, it's actually kind of a weird story. So I, I went to DePaul University in Chicago my first year. And I worked the desk of the Chicago Tribune, which was not a glamorous job. Um, you're looking at working, I think the shift was from 5 p.m. to midnight. Um, and you're putting scores in the paper and you're not really doing a lot of, uh, you're not doing any writing, you're not doing any content creating, which is fine. You, you pay your dues, you know, um, every, everybody has to do that. So uh, I tried to write for them. They, they let me write two stories. Um, I really had to hustle for those, um, which again, is fine. I was 19 years old. And I ended up um, uh, getting an internship with the Sun Sentinel, which was one of their sister papers, one of the papers they owned um, in South Florida. And I was able to, a couple of lucky breaks happened, and I was able to start covering, as like the fourth, third or fourth person, um, start covering the Dolphins uh, over that summer. And again, I was 20 years old, something like that. And um, I ba basically, the paper said, do you want to skip the semester uh, and just kind of be there full time and, and cover more football and all that stuff, cover a little bit more hurricanes? And I said, sure. Um, and then I was basically just like, I don't want to go back to the desk at the Chicago Tribune putting scores in the paper. I want to keep writing. I want to keep doing what I'm doing from Florida. So this feels more natural. I like the warmer weather rather than the colder weather. And so I ended up just transferring to Miami. Um, and it was for professional reasons for, at first, but, but it was also, I mean, I wouldn't have done it. If, if you told me the exact same thing was happening in Los Angeles, I probably wouldn't have transferred to, to a USC or UCLA. I don't, that, that you know, it, Miami feels like home to me. I, I spent a lot of time there when I was a kid. Folks were three hours away, tons of friends in the area, still do. And so that was that that was why I got there. And then kind of what I was saying about Orlando, like if you're a sports fan in Miami, I mean like unbelievable. Like, you know, PGA, I, I remember someone uh, a couple of people were talking about Serena and Federer and how there were some people who either only saw them once or or never saw them and they regret it now and they oh man I should have gone to the US Open just to see them and it's like I probably saw like 10 of their matches just because I was just working in media in South Florida at the Keep This Game tournament and it's just like those sort of opportunities in a world class city like Miami again obviously there's the F1 race I'm like I'm a huge University of Miami um, football fan and someone showed me a photo the other day of so if you don't understand kind of what college football recruiting is there is no, there's there's money plays a part in it now um as of two years ago but really it's just like convincing people to come to a school with just just your words right and just by by making making a good impression and miami is hosting their recruits now on top of the f1 paddock oh man because because the because the paddock is permanent and so it's wow. right next to the stadium. And so it's like I was looking at this, the photos of where the of, of where the recruitment is happening, and I was like, "Wait a second, that's the that's the paddock. That's where like the <laughs> Heineken Club is." Um, and so my my best memories in Miami are obviously just like you know hanging around and, and taking advantage of an incredible city. And um, you know I go down to Miami all the time with, with with my wife. I was just there a couple of months ago, um, and I really do think it's 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 one of the best cities in the world, and that that entire region, um, even including. Palm Beach, Broward County, like all that stuff. I mean, it, it is it is it is truly unbelievable. And um, and I just you know I I, I I wish there was a professional way for me to for me to live there, um, but I don't think it's in the cards. So the best the best case scenario is having a two hour flight. there. Of course, now you have an excuse to go every May for a, a Formula One race, as mm -hmm. if you needed an excuse to get there. Kevin, you had a super super long run and a very very um, I would say 
excellent run uh, covering the NFL for the Wall Street Journal. What were some of the biggest skills that you developed personally, professionally, and, and as a journalist working for uh, the Wall Street Journal during that time? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think you learn, I was actually thinking about this last night because somebody asked me about something completely unrelated to this. Um, but you learn to adapt to what you have. And what I mean by that is, I, we could never write more than 1,100 words, 1,200 words. And so I had a different writing style. I had a different reporting style. I wasn't, I wasn't using superfluous words and, you know, because you just can't. You just can't. You cannot have a, a throwaway line. And one of the things I think has actually helped about The Ringer is that, like, I can do those kind of throwaway lines or, like, little jokes or whatever, but only sparingly. Like, you just can't waste people's time. Like, I had an editor used to say, just don't waste people's time. Don't waste people's time with some flowery lead or whatever. Just, like explode into it and so for me like the biggest advantages we had at the wall street journal the people wanted to talk to us because it was the wall street journal and they knew it was safe that we were you know well-trained people um and that things were gonna uh be handled in a first-class way and like the fact that we were able to go anywhere and travel anywhere and that we were frankly kind of as a reporting entity pretty well funded um that made it so that if i needed to just say hey i'm gonna go to indianapolis right now to go do a cult story like that stuff happened and so you end up you end up understanding how to report in person, how to do interviews. Like it's 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 a it's it's a hard thing to do to get incredibly comfortable in in person interviews. Um, and to you know, I think the biggest question I get from young journalists is is how do you uh, you know how do you go up to Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, and get comfortable with them? And you just the answer is you're doing your job and they're doing theirs. And there's nothing. It's it's no different than if you're talking to. This, you know, the, the head of a bank. It doesn't doesn't matter. Um, these are just people. Um, and so you, I learned that through just a ton of reps at the Wall Street Journal, um, where you're just talking to people over and over and over again for different stories and and creativity. And you know, the other thing is at the Wall Street Journal sports section, we only had one story a day, and so the the threshold to get in the paper was really high. So the idea had to be like super super elevated by the time you even pitched it there were no lazy ideas there were no lazy angles um it was always really really hard to get into and i think that that helped me when i got to a place where you went to you know i, I work for the internet now which is which means it's you know unlimited i can pitch any idea but the idea is always going to come in fully formed because i just have that brain from the wall street journal i got incredible guidance and mentorship from people at the journal and and obviously i mean the people at the ringer are probably probably more amazing in that regard as far as creativity and, and support and all that it sounds like obviously some really powerful transferable skills that you were able to bring over to the ringer although i think with the ringer at least one of the things that i like about it so much is at least especially on the written side there's a, a great deal of liberalism in terms of how long and how rich and and how detailed the written articles and the written work can be Having said that, you you were you were with the Wall Street Journal for a little over a decade. You made the transition to the Ringer. You're now a senior staff writer. How and when did the journey, your personal journey with the Ringer begin? Were you part of the crew that was kind of with Grantland at ESPN before, or did you come over as part of that initial wave of talent that was brought on to support the Ringer as it began its journey? So uh, I was with the Journal for six years, um, and so the, that was from 2010 to 2016. And then in January 2016, so this was six months before The Ringer launched, um, I got an email from Bill Simmons. Um, I was on the plane going to Denver to cover the AFC championship game between Denver and uh, New England. And um, I ended up, uh, I mean, like, you know, it's it, 
the one thing about this business, Mark, is you get most people get kind of reach outs all the time. Like anybody, because there's just so many media outlets, there's so many beats, there's so many whatever. And my advice to most to, to, to anybody in those situations is when it's right, it'll it will feel completely like a no brainer, right? Like if you have to talk yourself into something, unless there's an extenuating circumstance, it's probably not the right move because they're just you know again you're getting offered. I mean, I have friends who 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 are you know, beat writers in newspapers who probably get a reach out once a quarter, you know. Um, and so for me, for The Ringer, I'd had opportunities in the past. And then you get an email from Bill and he's saying, we're going to give you freedom. But, you know, the, we're going to be able to do so many things in so many different platforms. Like it was it was a complete no brainer. Um, and so I I was just over the moon. I was over the moon. I mean, like the, the Bill Simmons is, is a hero of mine. Um, you know, I, I always joke like it's it's hard for me sometimes to go on like a uh any podcast um adjacent to bill and because my wheels are spinning making in my head making sure i'm not ripping him off of something i learned in like 2011 from listening to his podcast you know like his his uh his his, his voice is so ingrained in my head it's, it's always funny the two people i probably um probably combine styles of in my brain i'm, I'm sure i do an extremely poor version is, is bill who i listened to since 2007 obviously read since 2001 um, and then there was a soccer podcast called was a soccer podcast uh, with James Richardson called the Guardian Football Weekly, which I also listened to in probably 2007, 2008, 2009. And that's when you're first learning what podcasts are. Um, and so the fact that I'm getting to um, to work for and work with, you know, my hero uh, in, in, in American journalism certainly is is something special. For those uh, listening at home that maybe aren't familiar with Bill Simmons, which is possible if you're listening in <laughs> yeah. Europe or Asia or the Middle East, uh, Bill Simmons really helped to crack the code that was sports and pop culture podcasts. Obviously, they existed prior to his debut mm -hmm. in, in 2007, but so many, I remember, you know, in the early 2000s, the mid 2000s, when I would grab my iPod shuffle and I would throw a podcast on it, really all that podcast was, was digitized segments of a radio show, Mike and Mike right. or Colin Coward or one of those other things. Bill Simmons was, was really the first one that took that long, kind of long form podcast-centric approach to podcasting. And mm -hmm. he really, really helped develop the template that so many people use today. And it's funny, if a show doesn't at least have some Bill Simmons DNA, it might actually be directly linked back to him or one of the platforms that he helped debut in Grantland or or The Ringer. My friend, how would you describe The Ringer? So I asked Megan the same question and she had a great answer, but for somebody that's maybe not familiar with the platform and it's kind of its mission statement, how would you describe The Ringer to somebody not super familiar with that network? Oh man, Megan probably did a better job than me. Um, <laughs> it is a extremely multi-platform sports and pop culture website that is is owned by Spotify. Um, and we have, we're just a storytelling platform, frankly, um, in the sense that we, we, it, one of the things that I think is so cool about The Ringer is whatever story I have, there's a home for it in some way. Maybe it's a narrative podcast. Maybe it's just me telling a story on a podcast. Maybe it's me writing 5,000 words about it. Maybe it's me writing 1,000 words about it. Maybe it's just a, we, we put it on video and we have my producers, Richie and Corey, come up with a trailer and we just like make it the greatest, you know, one and a half minute video of all time where, where I go through the story, right? Um, that's the beauty of it. And so The Ringer is just like this 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 multi-platform um, 
uh, journalism outlet that that is uh, at this point, you know, has has done work that's gotten a, a lot of people on on staff noticed, and and it's just been like one of the coolest journeys in in modern media of the past couple of years. Kevin, let's take a quick break. We got to pay some of those proverbial bills. You you know how the business works. <laughs> uh, we'll take a quick break, and when we get back, we are going to jump into Formula One, which I think is what you're here to talk about, and what everyone who's listening wants to. It wants to hear about. So we'll be back in 30 seconds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Like I said, from the jump, from the top, Mr. Mark Daly is not joining me today. And that is because this is a continuation of our interview series. Joining us today from the ringer, the one, the only, Kevin Clark. We've been talking about his beginnings, his journey through sports media, how he landed at the ringer. And he teased from the top a little bit about how Formula One initially intersected with his life. And obviously that snowballed and he now hosts the Ringer F1 show on the Ringer Podcast Spotify Network. My friend, you teased that you've been watching Formula One now for about about five years, but how did that initially happen? How did Formula One originally intersect with your life? And do you recall your first Formula One experience? I do. I remember all of it. Um, so I've, I wrote a piece about this at the beginning of the last season. Um, and that to me, even though I did going abroad in a year, on Rosilla's podcast before, like that piece kind of got a lot of attention and then ended up starting a different part of the journey um, where I was maybe writing a bit more about it, whatever. So here's what happened. And, and this is going to sound like a dramatic opening, but I promise you it's, it's not that big a deal. So my wife and I were walking on the street in the summer of 2017 and we got hit by a car. And... Um, the uh the my the injuries weren't nearly as bad as they could like it was one of those things where if you saw the accident it looked worse than it really was um and we ended up having to go to the hospital i had to go to the trauma ward all that stuff i've got a couple a couple cool scars on me but otherwise totally totally fine um and so I, we couldn't really do anything for for weeks after that um i my my work was like knowing knowing what i'd gone through they were kind of like don't do don't you're 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 done for for a month um, my wife was the same way and, and kind of when you're in, when you have those kind of things, your sleep pattern gets screwed up. And so I was just like looking for sports, frankly. Um, and, and I'm not going to, we've joked about baseball. I'm not going to sit around watching the Dodgers. Um, and I right. started just flipping through the channels and I saw, I, I believe, I believe the first F1 thing. And listen, I obviously knew who Lewis Hamilton was and Michael Schumacher, and I knew all of this stuff. And I've joked before that, you know, I went to Italy when I was in high school. Um, and when you'd go to, there'd be these fake jersey stands everywhere, like everywhere. Like the unlicensed jersey market in Italy in the mid 2000s was unbelievable. And it would be like Juventus jerseys, AC Milan jerseys, Lazio jerseys, and then like a fake Michael Schumacher yeah, kit. Yeah, like he was the only <laughs> non-soccer player that was able. You'd always have the Schumi, the Schumi shirt. Um, but and so obviously I knew about the the culture of it, and I knew 
generally the who the who the racers were, but I had not really like paid attention to it. I'm 99% sure the first F1 thing I ever saw was a Daniel Ricardo um, practice lap at Spa. Um, I did not know Daniel Ricardo is a good example. I didn't know who that was. Um, so it was 2017. Um, I started watching it then. By 20 early 2018, um, a couple of things had happened. Number one is that if you remember, um, there was there were a couple of of pre Drive to Survive reality shows. Remember the McLaren one where it was Zach Brown and yeah, uh, called Grand Grand Prix Driver. There was that. Um, I just gotten more into it. Um, I remember I got married in 2018, and I remember just like staying up on our honeymoon um, to watch Monaco. Um, on, and, you know, it was a weird time zone because we were in Africa. Um, and so I don't, or one of the practice sessions or the qualifying, I just remember in the middle of the night, I just like, oh, well, might as well watch, watch Monaco. Um, and so, and so I just got, I was really into it. And it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was more just like, I, I love the competitive aspect of it. If you love football and you love not just the drama of who the characters are, but, the competitive aspect of it, the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that it's all problem solving, it's all puzzles. It's all, you know, I mean, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing. And so it wasn't like a conscious choice I made to be an F1 fan. It was more just like, I can't stop watching this. And, and it just snowballed from there. Was this your first foray into motorsports? And I asked that because you, you talked about how, how much, college football is the lifeblood of the sports yeah, yeah. community in, in Florida. But NASCAR obviously has a huge presence there as well. And Indy's had some presence in, in the Tampa, St. Petersburg area. Was this your first foray into motorsports? Yeah, not even close, actually. Um, big NASCAR fan growing up. Big, big, big NASCAR fan. And that is inter- It's a, what's interesting to me, and it's probably similar to folks in Europe now, um, and this was, I grew up during the glory days of NASCAR. I'm talking Dale Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace, Dale Jarrett, Terry Labonte, you know, Harry Gant, all those old, all those old outlaws, right? Um, Dar- tail end of Daryl Waltrip. I remember him at least getting a couple of drives. And what I think is interesting is I didn't know that Florida was one of the hotbeds. I mean, kind of in the same way college football is a hotbed in the South. Obviously, NASCAR is as well. And as a car culture there. And the one thing I didn't maybe appreciate is that when I was 10 years old and I'd go into a 7-Eleven and, and people are, you know, either have have the NASCAR race on or the same Jeff Gordon's leading after 100 laps. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that was weird. You know, um, I didn't know that was a regional thing. Um, and so I loved NASCAR for a long time. I was a big Rusty Wallace guy. I actually... When this F1 thing took off, um, for, for um, on my side, I actually had uh, a meeting with a, a NASCAR official, um, just, just, to, just to BS. And I said to him, I was like, man, one thing I wish you guys could do is just make great retro uh, merch. Because I would wear the hell out of it, like a nice Rusty Wallace shirt right now. <laughs> um, but they only, make, they only really make Dan Earnhardt stuff anymore. Um, but anyway... Um, so it's not – I, I love NASCAR growing up. And I actually um, – tell you a funny story. So, again, going back to Orlando, there was a restaurant called Race Rock, uh, which was like a, a racing-themed uh, – just like – was I guess it was supposed to be a chain, but it ended up being a chain. And it opened up, and my dad worked for a local magazine, just like a kind of a small thing. And 
he was able to get me in that day, not not to the grand opening, but like that day as like, a, you know, I was like 10 years old. OK. And so they're doing photo shoots and Michael Andretti is there and Rusty Wallace is there. And like that night, like everybody was supposed to come. Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, all that stuff. Right. But for some reason, Rusty Wallace and Michael Andretti were uh, were at this thing and they needed a kid to like be in a photo or something. And so we did a, remember the old uh, arcade games like Daytona USA oh, yeah. and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I went against those guys. I went against Rusty Wallace and Michael Andretti in that. No it was way. crazy. And they didn't really know what to do. It's not like, <laughs> what's funny about it now, Mark, is that now like a Max Verstappen and Alex Albon and Charles Leclerc, like they know those of games course, so yeah. well. They do the Sims all the time. Andretti yeah. and Rusty Wallace could not have been more confused by this simulator. Could not have been more confused. So I, <laughs> I'm trying to remember the result. I, I beat. I remember beating the brakes off of Andretti. I think Rusty and I actually had some some good some good laps. But yeah, that that was Florida in the '90s. I love that story. What an amazing story to hold on to. Um, question for you. I have, I have I have a photo. I have a photo of it. And so when they were doing. The virtual NASCAR last uh, during the pandemic, they were all doing the Sims. I was like, I actually tweeted it out and said, I was doing virtual NASCAR 20 years ago. Get on, get on my level. I have to go and find that. You know, we we talk a lot about the NBA and the NBA on the show. I think much to the chagrin of our listeners, just because I'm such a big, <laughs> much just because I'm such a big NBA fan, despite the fact that my team was torn away from me back in 2001. But I will sure. I will stay off that tangent uh thank you thank you memphis for now having a wonderfully entertaining nba team but uh one of the questions that often comes up is do people tend to gravitate in f1 towards teams or drivers and i think Mm -hmm. in the nba what we've seen over the last few decades is this gradual shift especially amongst younger fans towards supporting individuals supporting players over over teams and in some team sports like the nhl it tends to be more supporting teams over players from your perspective, what has your personal experience been? Do you find, and obviously you're a journalist, you're subjective, but do you tend to find yourself gravitating towards team-based storylines or driver-based storylines? In, in F1? Um, I, I think that... In yeah, F1, yeah. 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 Um, I think that for me, I, I was never going to be a, a full-blown supporter of a, of a team. Um, the storylines, to me, it depends. I think that what Drive to Survive has done for the vast majority of, of, of casual fans, which would be, frankly, the vast majority of our listeners who are listening to the Ringer F1 show and not listening to you guys or The Race or uh, F1 Nation. I mean, like that. You, if you're get, if I do not know as much as, as Damon Hill and, you know, when the BBC has, you know, literally f- current formula e drivers you know or even f1 drivers breaking it down i promise you i surrender i do not know as much as them right um and so and so uh for 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 casual fans i think that one thing that drive to survive has done is it's created these guys into tv characters and that's the reason it's funny i i had i got all these nascar i i I would say mark and i know i this is this is like such a like I'm, I'm definitely not complaining. Um, I've had I, I was worried about gatekeeping from European fans, and I've gotten none of it. I think European fans think that the American boom is mostly pretty cool, and I've had an incredible experience with them. If I've gotten any pushback, it's very very small percentage, and it's not all of them by any means. It's a lot of American open wheel um, fans who are maybe a little 
who think that the shine should be on IndyCar or whatever. I mean, I, I give props to NASCAR. I, 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 I also really enjoy IndyCar and I have a huge respect for it. And especially watching guys like Colton Herta and, and, you know, it, like seeing kind of the, now that there's, there's more F1 interest in IndyCar, I've, I've certainly watched it more. Um, but having said that, um, so I, I think that what, what Drive to Survive um, has been able to do is when I, I gave a I, I tweeted about how NASCAR could improve itself a couple months ago and somebody said, well, why does NASCAR need to improve when F1 is the one that's boring in comparison to NASCAR, right? It's the reason I tell the story. And I said to the person, I said, what F1 has done is what every league wants to do, which is they've turned their drivers into soap opera stars, basically. To the point that you people want to see if Lance Stroll is tenth or ninth, and they, and, and they would never do that with. I mean, you know, you wouldn't have the same investment if you're a casual fan and say Kyle Larson in NASCAR, you know, or even you know Joseph Newgarden, you know, is it, it, you wouldn't have the same um, knowledge of his personality, his background, all of that stuff. Drive to Survive has totally changed everything, and so unless it's Ferrari. Um, which obviously has its own team storyline and they keep screwing up and they're also just a hugely famous um, team and and we all kind of know the connotations of everything that they do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's going to be driver-based. It's going to be driver-based because these guys are personalities and a lot of that has to do with drive to survive. Um, and so I don't, I, I would say we spent, I'd say most of the reaction, most of the questions we get are about the specific drivers because of what drive to survive has built. I like the fact earlier that you were talking about NASCAR and, you know, geographically, I don't think here in the Pacific Northwest, we could get much farther from kind of the, the bedrock, uh, the base, the, the fan base uh, of, of that yeah. sport. But I also do specifically remember that there was a point in the mid late 2000s prior, prior global recession where NASCAR was beginning to penetrate the social conscious of, of this area of, of North America. And I think for me, at least as a non NASCAR fan, kind of an outsider looking in NASCAR kind of peaked around Talladega nights and, and Ricky <laughs> Bobby. And then when the global recession happened, I think a lot of that big corporate money kind of backed out of the sport. You've now been watching F1 and you started watching before the boom that it's experiencing right now what do you think NAS, not nascar what do you think formula one needs to do to continue this momentum and just make sure that this doesn't become a boom and bust cycle that this experience that they're having in terms of massive fan interest is sustainable and, and can continue over the next five to ten years it's funny I, i've i've thought about this a lot and i've gotten this question a lot and for me, it's funny because I think that the highest rated NASCAR race ever is after the boom that I thought was happening. So I thought that I, I, I you know, remember you remember 2001 with Dale Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jeff Gordon still going. Um, I think the highest rated NASCAR race was Daytona 2007. Um, and I think that a couple of things, I think they made the cars too homogenous, the car of tomorrow and all that stuff. And it just became, if you're into the tech stuff, it became less interesting, I would say. Um and I think that uh, the team element just isn't as compelling because it's it's multiple cars per team. Um, uh, it's not it's not too you know it's it's less I'd say confrontational right um, than than what than what F one is um, and the the cars are even there's a big variance even within individual teams. Okay, but to answer your question, one thing that I think that NASCAR did a poor job of is making itself cool. They tried to be cool, and they tried in a way that I don't think 
worked. I think if you were to market it as we're just rambunctious Southern um, and Southwestern kind of, um, you know, hooligans. You know, I, you know, it's funny because uh, Sebastian yeah, yeah, Sebastian yeah. Vettel called uh, Scott because Colton Hurd his nickname is a, is hooligan, and uh, some so and and then <laughs> Sebastian somebody asked Sebastian Vettel about Colton Hurd and uh, and he I mentioned Scott Speed and he was like Scott Speed was kind of a hooligan too. Um, there's an American racing, I don't want to say stereotype, but trope that you you know you've seen these movies from the 70s and and the 80s where it's just like guys you know rubbing is racing all of that stuff they're always trying to get in fist fights and i think nascar had that and that was cool that was cool and they tried to go hollywood in the early 2000s and they tried to make it more cosmopolitan i would guess and they they strayed away from who they were and what I what I think F1 has the advantage of is they're already cool in the way that they want to be cool. It's role, you know, Bernie Eccleston had the famous line uh, that they want the F1 fans should ha- be able to buy a Rolex. Right. Um, I don't think that, that that's what the F1 community is, but I think it's it still is mostly and there are exceptions to it, but mostly people who want to buy a Rolex. Right. Um, whereas I think other um you know, as somebody was just talking about this the other day um, on on oh it was, it was Mara when he was on my pod. It was just like you know even if you just watch F one to just see the the luxury advertisements, like you're in a you're in a pretty good spot, you know. Um, and obviously, listen, there are, there are completely disgusting, um, gross things about the uh, the the excess of of, uh, of of focus on money in Formula One. Um, it is ridiculous. And walking around Miami, you got to see it firsthand, where you'd see some random you know, club called, you know, club, club 305 or whatever. And, 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 and I, and I talked to somebody there and it's like, oh yeah, these tickets are $11,000. And it's like, very cool. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you got that the, the barrier for entry here is, is thousands of dollars to be able to see uh, a race. I mean, I do think, I do think F1 could, could do a better job of, of making it all more affordable, which NASCAR by the way has done. Um, and so that's something to watch over the next couple of years is making sure you don't price out the casual fan. I mean, I think I've seen, I'm sure you've, you've heard about this. Um, people are saying that, that in Montreal, the seats they used to buy for 90 bucks are now going for, for five fifty. Um, and, and F1 has to watch that. Um, but I think that they have an advantage over NASCAR. Um, my only concern is that they're adding races to the calendar. At some point it becomes a slog. One of the things about F1 is the exclusivity and the fact that you can go through without a race. And if you get to every Sunday with a race, every Friday with a, um, we were watching practice every Saturday with qualifying or a sprint, you know, in, in some situations at some point people say, okay, like enough, I don't need. And, and then once you, it starts a cascading effect. Once you skip one race, you skip two. Um, and I just think that one of the things the NFL has done a really good job of is ne- they added one game over the course of what, 40 years and then one playoff game. They know, uh, they know what to do to to keep their audience happy. Earlier this year, the Ringer Spotify Podcast Network launched the Ringer F1 show. And I think I totally misunderstood, and you kind of teased a little bit before the, uh, the initial break how this came to be, but I always imagined that this is how it played out. You built a 15-slide PowerPoint presentation, you got your <laughs> laptop, you marched into Bill Simmons' uh, marble and leather-appointed lavish office, and you connected it to the projector, and you convinced him, based on all the analytics and data, that now was the right time to do an F1 podcast. That's not quite how it happened, hey? 
okay? Talk not, a little bit about how the Ringer F1 show came to be. How was it born? Yeah, so there'd always been, it was funny because someone had sent me a DM. Someone sent me a screen grab of a DM from two years ago saying, I'd love for you to do an F1 show. And I wrote back, hey, I really appreciate you saying that, but that that will never happen. That will never happen. I just have too much to do. And also, I have such a respect for the people who I know how hard I work to be able to talk about football intelligently. Okay. And I think it's offensive when someone doesn't put in the work and just says, Hey, I'm here to talk about the sport. Right. And so for me to be able to, to talk about a sport, either I'm going to have to work really hard, which by the way, I am on F1, but, or I'm going to have to have guests who can, who I can just be the moron for. Right. Just like, OK, I'm I'm I have a decent handle on what this is. I have a decent handle handle on this this vocabulary you're talking about. But like you're going to have to explain this. You're smarter than me. Right. And so one of those things would have to happen. So I was always pessimistic. I would ever have the time, the capacity, the resources to be able to do it. And most of it was was the time because I, I do spend a lot of time on football. Um, and someone had told me that a couple of a couple of years ago. There was a, a, a guy I know was, was doing a job posting at Spotify or The Ringer, and um, the outside candidates had to come up with a couple ideas um, just to just kind of prove what their, 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 their creative chops were. And the guy told me that the by far the biggest idea was an F1 show hosted by me. And, and I think, obviously, I think you'd include Ryan in that spot, too, because um, we, we, did, we did going abroad at that point. Um, we still do. And, um, so I thought about that, but like, I never, that was never actionable to me. Right. Again, cause I just thought that like, it's Austin, it's October 21st or whatever it is. And like, I got 11 football games to watch and I watched 10 college football games a day before and I got five other things to do. So it really was their idea. Um, the, the idea was just to do, um, drive to survive recaps and then those did well. And then, as I said, we kind of evolved from there. I think the, probably the plan was to do an irregular podcast. And then I, I kind of came up with my idea to do to do previews only just because I knew I had to keep weekends clear. And then, listen, it's a nice problem to have that too many people liked it, you know. Um, and so I don't, you know, again, I still have the same respect for the people who do it week in and week out. And that's why we try to have people like Nate Saunders, Chris Medlin, um, you know, uh, Luke Smith. I mean, like guys, guys who, who, who do the work every single week or in the paddock, we're breaking stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I just saw, uh, Adam Cooper talking about Logan Sargent the other day on Twitter. And it's like, those are the guys who know we're, I'm just bloviating here. Right. Um, and so I think the most important thing when you're doing this is coming from, coming to it from a place of respect and just knowing like, I'm never going to know as much as those guys. I'm never going to know about the car stuff. I mean, when we have Matthew Summerfield on, I'm blown away by how much he's able to talk about those cars. I will never be able to do that. And so the, my guess uh, is, or my, 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 my charge is to platform those people and educate our viewers that way. And then just, I'll have me, I'll tell a couple funny jokes and, and get those guys <laughs> the, the shine they need, you know? Uh, Brian Curtis, uh, our media writer, had me on his Press Box podcast a couple of months ago to ask me kind of what we're talking about here. And he said, like, what's your strategy? Because you can talk about Kyle Shanahan, you know, running play action, but you can't talk about, um, you know, the double stack or whatever. Um, and I said, you know, the biggest thing is that people are going to smell a fraud uh, miles away 
if if I tried to be tech guy, or if I tried to be driver strategy guy, or if I tried to be in one of your podcasts, the F1 strategy report, you're talking about stuff that I would not independently think about, right? Um, and so that to me is the biggest thing is like, just come to it from a place of like, I love this sport. I'm on this journey. And I'm I, for most people listening to it, I've watched a couple more years than you. But I'm kind of just like you. And thank God I have people who can explain it to me better. And I will platform those people as much as I possibly can. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Yeah, shout out, by the way, to the Press Box, to Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, one of my favorite podcasts on the Ringer Spotify Podcast Network. Since starting the Ringer F1 show, what have you learned about the F1 community that maybe you didn't expect? And how has this informed the way that you prepare for and or deliver the show? And I ask this knowing that I remember watching the development of the show when I remember the Drive to Survive recaps, but I also mm-hmm. remember, and I don't know if this was on Reddit or if this was on Twitter, but there was this real push to have instant, that instant gratification race recap. And I yeah, remember yeah, yeah. seeing that, and I remember how quickly you guys reacted to that that demand and that need, but talk about some of the things you've learned about the community and how that has influenced the way you prepare the show. Yeah, so that that is a good example. Um, we did not have a recap on the first race. Uh, we didn't do it. And then we had so many people mad at us that we we're like, oh, wow, there's actually a community here. And again, mad being a good thing because they, they wanted yeah, of more. Of course, of course, they want content. And so, yeah. And so um, I learned quickly that they wanted race recap and they wanted to go up quickly. Um, there isn't, I have to be, you know, to be honest with you, Mark, like there isn't a ton of emphasis in the F1 community on podcasts in the, in the same way American sports have for their sports um you know there are some of the biggest podcasts will take three four week breaks if there's no race um and you see listen like the race does an amazing job missed apex obviously spanners comes on with me all the time of course of course um though they those are, you know they're doing their streams they're doing great stuff they're doing great work that's where i learn a ton about f1 um but you think about like the bbc um, and you know, they basically just do previews and recaps and maybe a couple of special things. And like, if you flip it and let's say ESPN, which obviously holds the rights, um, and you know, that, that would, they would do weekly stuff. They do almost daily stuff. Um, so it's a different, I would say it's a different media appetite. Um, and you know, again, I would say that the thing that surprised me, I was just so nervous how it would be perceived by diehard fans and, it's honestly the 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 fans who were most mad at me were and again it was like eight people out of you know I can't give up numbers but like a lot of people um, and most of them were Americans like I actually don't remember a European getting mad at me um, or just tweeting at me like I, I, I didn't see it um, it's like you know, a small handful of Americans who um, who wanted it. And, you know, I was also, it, we got in like at the right time, like the, a couple of other um, media companies started F1 pods later on in the season. Um, there's just a, there, I think that there's just a lot of people, you know, when, when I was at, um, I interviewed Zach Brown, obviously from McLaren in March. Um, and 
uh, the reason he was in New York was he'd gotten a sponsorship for his Extreme E team uh, at the New York Stock Exchange. And he, um, the the CEO of the company basically said that she got, she during the pandemic, she watched Drive to Survive and she called, uh, she called her, you know, COO or whoever and said, uh, I don't know what F1 is, but I want to get involved in this, right? I think that those sort of calls are happening all the time. That stuff takes time to set up. And I think you're seeing now over the summer, ESPN launched a podcast, Meadowlark launched a podcast, Amazon launched a podcast, the the Will Arnett, Michelle Beadle, Marrow thing I just referenced. Um, I think we were kind of lucky to get in the week before the season. I was surprised that there weren't more launches of F1 podcasts that week. Um, but now there's 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 a um, it's a pretty crowded market, which is amazing. Like imagine if you're an American F1 fan in particular, or even a European fan looking for a different perspective, you have so many really cool options. Um, and you know, Marrow, who's one of the funniest people on TV in America, he wasn't even a fan until he had Lewis Hamilton on his show, I think in 2021. So that's an even newer wow. fan than most people. And it doesn't matter that he doesn't you know, understand driver strategy. He was on my show being extremely honest about it, but he's really funny. And like, if you pair him, he's doing something with Mika Hakkinen right now. Like, yeah, you pair those guys together. I promise you, Mika can carry the driver knowledge. <laughs> We're going to be fine on that. Mero can bring the jokes. And so I'd say it's, it's a, I'd say, I'd say the warmth of the community is something that I don't think it surprised me, but I, I've been excited about it, that, that there isn't a lot of gatekeeping. And you know, you think it, I think sometimes you get a little bit of that in soccer, a little bit. But then I think about it and I'm just like, okay, I'm a huge Orlando Magic fan, right? And if tomorrow I found out that there was a really cool bar in Istanbul or in Vienna where everybody got together to watch the Magic, right? I would think that was incredibly cool. I wouldn't gatekeep and say, oh, wait, you probably yeah. don't even know who yeah. Nick Anderson is. I'd go, no, that's yeah. amazing. And so when, when I think about it, the roles are reversed and it's like, I think they the gatekeepers are weird because if, if you like something, um, you you want to share it with people. You want to share it with people all over the world. And and so I've been incredibly encouraged um, by the embrace of, of the F1 community and just the fact that, again, if there are any naysayers, it's like five five guys. Like I'm not I'm, – I'm incredibly not worried about it. And the, the vast majority of our listeners probably are American, and that's a good thing. Like We have an incredible – incredible community and the amount of people who want to talk f1 i mean there's people i I do think that it's such a new sport that there's a community here that and i'm sorry new sport new sport to so many people that maybe they don't have the um community built up you know if you if you're living in chicago you can talk about the bears you can walk down down two blocks find a bar and just start talking about justin fields right a little bit harder if you want to talk about uh, Carlos Sainz and whether or not he can ever be a number one driver, right? And so I think there's an online community now where they, um, you know, they, they reach out to me a lot. I get probably get more as many questions about the, when I say you know questions for today's show. I get as many questions for F1 as I do for NFL, even though the NFL is the most popular sport in America. Um, and so the, I'd say I'd say the eagerness for everybody to come together has been uh, just. Awesome. Awesome to see. Yeah, I completely agree with your assessment of the community in the sense that it's it's welcoming and it's very warm and we see very little of that gatekeeping. I've got one last F1 question for you before we do a couple of rapid fire questions and wrap this up. You've been incredibly generous with your time, but what do you think, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, but what do you personally think would be the impact 
on the sports popularity stateside if and when a solid U.S. driver makes their debut. I shouldn't say debut yeah. because we had Rossi a few years ago, but in this current era of F1, we see an, F- an American F1 driver. Well, I think it can't be it can't be a publicity stunt, right? And it can't be no shots to anybody. It can't be a Latifi type who's just on the grid kind of embarrassing himself every week. And I think that, I think that, I mean, even like, listen, Lance Stroll has a great, I I know everybody makes jokes about him, but like he did have a great, you know, rise up the ranks in in the lower levels and um, at least establish him credentials and is now every once in a while in the mix, right? I'd say that to me would be like, the baseline for someone who generates who generates buzz, um, you know, you, you, you're you're in the points at least uh, a respectable amount of time, or at least you know you're not you're not just running twentieth, nineteen, eighteenth. You're not in kind of the um, the the you know the the uh, Haas twenty Haas twenty twenty one you know the Latifi zone here. Um, I think that they'd have to sc- score points regularly. And I think that there's just they'd have to be probably marketable um, and probably be you know available to go on Jimmy Fallon or whatever. Um, and I, but uh, but I also think that the the folks who are in you know Colton Herta is that you know um, he understands that it's listen it's not like IndyCar is way different from F two and F three. I think that's one of the things with the super license thing that I get so upset about. It's like not only are these guys racing in a hugely competitive um, division, but they are selling themselves in the media already. They're working with sponsors already. Like they're already doing this stuff. They're already doing all the thing, obviously at a different scale. It's not like, you know, a, an F1 Friday, um, but they're, they're, they're doing this stuff already. And so they're going to know the expectations coming in. And so I think it would help. Um, I don't think it would be, I mean, like Christian Pulisic is obviously a star in, in, in the English Premier League. And I don't think that's necessarily change the dynamic of how people feel about European soccer. European soccer was already huge. Um, you think about all, I mean, I, I follow soccer pretty regularly and the amount of Americans playing on legitimate teams is astounding. Um, and that was not the case in 2005, even 2010 when, when soccer started to take off in America. But I don't think it's fundamentally changed the way that, that we view the sport. I don't even think it's helped ratings. I think it's more that the people who do like it now have an attachment to it and they could you know, those individual people become a phenomenon. The teams probably make more money with, I mean, I, I think somebody was just talking about Logan Sargent getting a test drive. I, don't quote me on this, but and I, they were talking about how one of the sponsors, um, I guess, I guess it was for, uh, um, who, who is, is, is it Aston Martin who's going to give him a, 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 a test? I know, I know he was in the mix for, yeah, he's yep, in the mix. I, I yep. confused you because he's in the mix for the Williams spot. Totally. But he's totally, going totally. to test for Aston, right? I think yeah. it's more yeah. on a kind of local level. I don't think that, you know, if if there was an American Lewis Hamilton, I promise you there would be there there he would be a phenomenon here. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think that there's um, I don't I don't think that there'd be some some huge boom uh, if it's if it's kind of a you know tenth place type of guy. Um, you know, like I'm looking at Stroll right now. He he's in the he was in the points five times this year. Okay, like if you if you have that, that's enough to where people will follow you, but not enough to where you're going to be. You know, the the attempt the, the national 
a national figure of, of adoration every single Sunday. Kevin, you've been incredibly generous with your time. So we're going to wrap this up. But first, I've got some rapid fire questions for you that'll kind of come from around the world of motorsports. The first one is this, with the 2022 championship winding down, what has A, been your biggest surprise so far this season? And two, what has been your biggest disappointment? Biggest surprise has been the ability for Red Bull to overcome the reliability issues in the way that... I. I think we forget when that now now that Lance is excuse me uh, Max is winning. I have Lance Stroll on the brain now. Um, now that Max, <laughs> so do I. But that's because I'm now Canadian. that Max. I'm looking at his record right now. I mean, it's you know it's an 11th two years ago. Let's ride. Um, but now that Max is winning every race, the ability for Red Bull to get over their early problems and for Mercedes to take longer to do that. And for Ferrari to take longer to do that, to the point that Ferrari is still having a lot of the same problems, and at this point they just seem, um, I don't know, endemic to the team. Um, the fact that Red Bull was able to overcome their reliability issues that really were extremely localized in the first month of the season to become a dominant team is really impressive to me. It's really, really impressive to me. And I didn't think it was going to happen. I thought I actually thought Ferrari was going to win the championship, you know, even a, a month out. And a lot of this has to do with with Ferrari um, and just their 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 election of duties and in 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 enforcing a title race. Um, but I just think we're seeing something with Red Bull now that is historic, and the competence that they show. Um, the fact that they don't really, I mean, like they had, a, I think they had a slow pit a couple weeks ago and I, it was, it was, it was like, what? It's like when, when the, when Bill Belichick gets out coached yeah. or something, you're just like, yeah, yeah. wait a second, hold on now. And, <laughs> and the confidence that they show, I mean, they serve a function, which is they do everything well. And unless someone does, you know, everything well beyond that, which only really Merck was able to do over the past decade, um, they're unbeatable. And I think that you see the amount of unforced errors with Ferrari, obviously Mercedes with the porpoising and some of their other issues. Um, and you just see the fact that Red Bull is just going to be there applying pressure all the time to where in this new generation of cars, I'm intrigued to see how how well they can take this if, if everybody else continues to struggle. Um, biggest disappointment, Ferrari. I mean, like, it's better for us, Mark. It's better for us if there's an actual title race. Like, I don't... I, 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 sorry, I don't like the fact that every time I have a guest on our show, including yesterday, I have to go, so what are you watching the last three months of the season? Because you're not watching a title race. We're watching Ferrari versus Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship for second place. Like, I mean, that was a, coming out of the, of the last race. They asked Toto that post-race, and I was like, hey, it's a pretty good it's a pretty good uh, question. You know, who, who, who's going who's gonna to finish higher in the constructive championship between Ferrari and Mercedes? But like, you know what I'd rather be asking? Who's going to win the driver championship? Yes, yes. And, and I, want, I want that next year. And that falls at the feet of Ferrari and Mercedes to do something. I think we all knew after the porpoising that Mercedes was out of this. Can they win more races? Sure. Especially if, um, you know, later in the season, we'll, we'll see what happens. But at this point, Max keeps getting grid penalties. It keeps not mattering. Like, this is on those top teams to apply pressure, and they're not doing it, Mark. We have a, a very tight-knit community, and I'm typically pretty candid with them about the business side of our podcast. And I'll be honest, you know, last year we had one of the the most riveting championships in the modern history of F1. And our numbers, yes. Kevin, they grew 
and grew and grew and yes. they didn't peak with the finale they continued to grow during the off season yes. right through drive to survive and right into the championship but you know what did happen about eight weeks ago they started to collapse and they started to collapse because all of this pent-up interest began to yeah. fade as the championship began to fall apart and all the credit in the world to Marco, to Christian, to Max. They're going to win two championships. But I'm furious as a content creator. I'm furious at Ferrari <laughs> that they stole from us what could have been a much yeah. closer championship. And, and, and Ferrari, and I was going to say, and Ferrari is so hugely popular. Yes. Notre Dame. Oh. It's like, anything, like them in the title race would be a phenomenon. It wouldn't be like last year unless there was that kind of drama and that kind of controversy. But Ferrari, I think, is so unbelievably popular worldwide. There would just be, It would be a phenomenal title race, even if it was just a little bit close heading into the last two races. And I don't, I agree with you. I mean, like, I, I look at some of the numbers for pods, for F1 pods last year um, around the time of, of Abu Dhabi, and it was astounding. And I kind of think that it's not just... So, so many people get into F1 through Drive to Survive in America every single March. And to get in last year, which I think was was a bit of an inflection point, is so important because they get in and all of a sudden, everything there is to see about F1, they learned in like two months. Strategy, uh, grid penalties, I mean, like the, the, the crashes and just kind of whose fault is what and Toto sending emails to Michael Massey. You know, I mean, it was just like, you you got cut up to speed um, with that stuff, and so I, I the fact that they were they didn't follow it up. I mean, obviously that's not F one's fault, but the fact they didn't follow it up with with anything remotely competitive, I think, is a letdown in the eyes of probably the the, the, the folks who create content. I say this all the time: absolutely nothing moves the needle for our show, and this show's been around now since 2016. Nothing moves the needle for this show like a successful Ferrari team. And we had our fingers crossed, you know, a month into the season that we could have a championship that could go down, maybe not to the last lap of the last race, but maybe goes down to the last. Last month. One last question before I let you go, and I'm dying to know because you alluded to this earlier. You're a huge Orlando Magic fan. All of our <laughs> listeners know I'm a diehard NBA fan. What are your predictions for the Magic this year? How's Jalen going to be? What about Markel Fultz? I need yeah. to know from the subject matter expert what you expect of the Orlando Magic heading into the 2022-2023 season. So obviously they get Paula Bancaro first overall, which looks a lot better now with Chet's injury. And which is unfortunate because I wanted to see those guys go at it and and you wonder now what what Chet's timetable is. Although the, the Thunder are on a different timetable than anybody. Um, I think they're going to win games they shouldn't and they're going to be much better. I don't think they're a playoff team. I think there may be a play-in team if everything goes right. If Jalen Suggs' shooting improves, his defense last year was actually pretty good, um, but it's just going to be hard for him to to make an impact if, he, if he's just an, uh, a zero as a, as a shooter. Um, we'll see how that develops. I, I, have, I have high hopes for him. Um, and I have high hopes for, for Franz and, and, and the young core. I think that this is a year where you start to take a step forward. And then, I mean, I always think that of the trajectory of, of a couple of the teams um, that the Magic have had in the past, which have ended up making the finals, which is the core gets together. They have kind of a failure year. They learn lessons. The following year, they get kind of a low playoff seed. And then the next year, they're competing for the, for the East. I, th I really do think it, it only takes... Once the core is together, it really only takes three years. And I wouldn't be mad, Mark, if we were a lottery team again next year and we're able to get one more piece 
um, before we, we start that run. Sounds like you have a lot of faith in Jeff Weltman, and you should because he's got some of that Toronto Raptor DNA in him. Yeah. Kevin, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. Where can our listeners follow you? Where can they check out your work? And where can they hear some of your great podcast work? Yeah, so um, I host a podcast called Slow News Day, um, which is the football podcast. So that's pro and college football. Probably at some point we'll have like some some golf and, and whatever. We'll never have F1 because we have another feed for that. It's called The Ringer F1 Show. Um, and and it, it's been really fun. So we had an episode yesterday again with Beetle and Marrow. And then next week we'll have some sort of news kind of thing with, with an F1 B-Rider. I still have to finalize that. Um, it's always hard to catch these guys because they're just tra- in, on airplanes all the time. And then when they're not on airplanes, they need to unplug because they've been on too many airplanes. <laughs> um, and so... Ring Ref One Show, and then on Twitter, I'm at, at ByCampBuck. That's awesome. Once again, thank you so much for joining. Everybody listening at home, if you want to check us out on Twitter, you can find us at f one pod We have now launched our website, www.scadariaf1pod.com. Welcome to 1999, to our team, for finally being able to put that <laughs> together. And if you like what you hear, you know, you know what means the world to us. If you can jump on Spotify, give us a rating. And if you listen on Apple, on your Apple Watch, your Apple phone, your Apple iPod, if you can give us a rating or review on Apple, podcast it means the world to us kevin once again thank you so much for joining us today to everyone listening at home like i said give us a rating give us a review we hope to speak to you all soon the next race coming up is the singapore grand prix we haven't been there since 2019 looks like sounds like it should be epic talk to everyone soon thanks for now yeah they gonna have fun with that smash like song in my songs gonna break through like a running back